Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Um, So this is uh, the book of Esther that we've been working through and it's chapters 7 and 8. And uh, chapter 7 is about Haman hanged. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. Chapter 8, the king's edict in behalf of the Jews. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king... For Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, And she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. 
for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Excuse me. <coughs> it's a long reading. <laughs> the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. <coughs> A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so our baddie, Haman, gets impaled on a giant stick. Hooray, he's dead. No, okay, I thought it was exciting. So he sets up this, this pole, this gallows to kill Mordecai on and in this great twist of irony, Haman himself is killed. My favourite movie growing up was The Lion King, the original one, obviously. Um, anyone else? Oh, a few lovers in the room, that's good. Um, what I loved about The Lion King, I used to leave the room for the hyena, the green scene, the hyena, Scar song, didn't like it, apparently cried every time, came back for Hakuna Matata and stayed till the end. But what I loved about The Lion King was the final kind of scenes, the finale, when Simba, when the king came back, the good guy came back and he put paid to Scar and Scar gets killed and he, and he wipes out the hyenas and he kind of reclaims the kingdom. And I think I was so, I loved that story. I used to act it out with my younger brothers. They were the hyenas. I was Simba. <laughs> I used to give them a whooping. 
And then, uh, <laughs> but I think one of the reasons why I loved The Lion King so much is because there was this, this really clear picture of the good guys beating the bad guys. The good guys won and the bad guys lost. And at first glance, I think we can feel a degree of satisfaction looking at this story of Esther when we see that, oh, the good guys have survived. They've managed to weasel their way out of Haman's plans and Haman has been destroyed. The bad guy is dead. And I think we kind of revel in this as people. Like we like to see the good guys win. It's kind of the the normal trope of every action movie is the good guys, generally speaking, unless they're trying to make you really think, the good guys beat the bad guys and the good guys are good and it's really easy and the bad guys are bad and they have no character development and they're just dead. And at the end we go, yay. In Psalm 7 it says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head and on his own skull. His violence descends. There's this kind of idea that the evil, the plans of the evil person won't prosper. They'll actually come back to bite them. And that's kind of what we see happening here with Haman. And we think, you know, he got what he deserved because he was a bad man. He was a hater. He was proud. He plots murder. He plans and enacts a law to commit a genocide. Like I think we can agree that is not a very nice thing. And he meets his end and we go, good, Haman is dead. There is hope now for the good guys. They're going to triumph. They're going to win. We haven't quite finished the story, but we can see where this is going. And tonight as we look at this passage, I want to have a look at two of the characters. We're going to look particularly at Haman and we're going to look at Mordecai. We're going to look at the way that the two of them, I guess the way that their hearts are positioned and postured and act. And we might see, as I often like to do, that we are perhaps a little bit more like Haman than we would like to admit. You ready? Let's pray. Father God, just pray that you would speak to us tonight, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us in the truth, that we would see ourselves as we really are, we would see ourselves in the light of what you've done, and we would see you, King Jesus, in your rightful place. In Jesus' name, amen. So we talked a lot last week about pride, and we're kind of going to continue that. We're going to see that's a little bit of a theme for the next few weeks. Because pride ultimately is the root of sin. It's pride in our lives that causes us, I think, to sin. Pride was the original sin of Lucifer. Pride, thinking that we might know best, is the original sin in the garden. And pride is the sin that just, I think, that we all keep committing. It's this weed that starts growing. And if left unchecked, it, it, it gets really big and really powerful and really strong in our lives. And pride is very obvious in Haman. 
And I'd like to present maybe the idea that pride, I think, is one of those things that is very obvious in other people. It's really easy to see when someone else is proud, but perhaps it's a little harder to look at ourselves and see our own pride. We can look at Haman in this story and go, yep, he's proud, he got what he deserved. And I wonder if you've ever sat through a sermon or heard a great quote or heard someone speaking and thought, oh man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. I wish that, you know, I wish that James had heard that. I love you, James. (laughs) But we do this, right? We see it so clearly in others, but we don't see it in ourselves. Is anyone here a fan of Russian literature? No? That's okay. You're about to be. There's this man, I'm going to butcher his name, but we're going to go there. His name is Alexander Solhenitsyn. And he was a, uh, he grew up as a Russian Orthodox Christian during the 1910s and 20s. He then denounced his faith and became a communist. And as a communist, he, he fully embraced the ideals of Leninism and Stalinism and all the isms that were in Russia in that time. And he worked very hard towards what he believed was the ultimate good that would come through this communist movement. However, he started to have some doubts. He started to see what what Stalin, who was the, the dictator, was doing. And he started to wonder, is this actually going to lead us to a greater good? Is this actually going to cause Russia and the world to be in a better place? And he penned a private letter questioning Stalin and sent it to a friend. And his friend, being a good communist, turned him in and he got sent to a gulag. Everyone say gulag. So a gulag is a Russian political prison. It's basically a concentration camp. And he was sent to this concentration camp and he was there for many years. And essentially what what they tended to do there was break rocks or dig. Now, one of the big projects that all the political prisoners in communist Russia had to do was dig this trench from sort of one area, like the ocean, in towards the cities. And it was like like hundreds of kilometres. It was all hand dug by Russian political prisoners. And he was beaten, he was tortured, sort of all these things happened. He ended up at the end of um, Stalin's reign being, being let out. And over the course of the, the rest of his life, he turned back to his faith and he turned back to God and he became um, one of the most prolific Russian authors of the 20th century. He won a Nobel Prize in literature, so he was very well regarded. And so here's a man who has been through tough things. He has been treated very poorly. And this is what he says about good and evil. He says, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. 
The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So this man who had experienced hardship and torture and oppression and great evils done to him walked out the end of it, not saying they're evil or there are evil people and there are good people, but instead saying the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, which I think is a profoundly biblical idea. This idea that each of us is capable of great evil, but with Christ, each of us is capable of great good. And I think it's very easy for us in the comfort of the West to rationalise our evil because we look at a Russian warlord or or an African slave trader or, or a you know, insert whatever you think is evil here. We look at those people and we say, well, they're the evil people. Here in the West, we, we kind of, we're all, we're pro everyone. We're good. Everyone's good. It's all good. But the line dividing evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And so without Christ... And it's important to frame it like this. Without Christ, we are no better than Haman. But with Christ, there is hope. But part of coming to Christ is, I think, recognising the evil that we are capable of and the sin of which we are guilty of. And when we start to realise how, I guess, messed up we can be without Christ, we start to realise how much we need him. And when we start to realise how much we need him, it starts to do something to our pride and that's that it starts to destroy it. Because in the light of the grace of God, pride can't stand. I think pride and entitlement in our culture are very intertwined. And having been a a high school teacher, both in in secular and private schools, I've seen and know what the, I guess, the dominant social dialogue that we're getting now is, that, that teenagers are getting. And it's one that says, you deserve X, Y, Z. You deserve to be happy. You deserve fulfilment. You deserve job satisfaction. You deserve love. You deserve to be accepted just the way you are. And while those things are partly true, what what it does in us is it breeds this sense of entitlement that we're actually entitled to certain things. So we walk through life believing I am entitled to feeling good. I'm entitled to things working out the way I want them to. I'm entitled to my life working out exactly the way I hope. And then when that doesn't happen, we get very disenchanted with the world. We get very angry and we blame everyone else. I don't think most of us actually go around thinking I'm better than others and therefore deserve to be treated so. I don't think we do that. 
And I think most of us don't really consider ourselves proud either. But I think most of us feel jaded if we're not recognised for our achievements. I was telling Indy before, I, uh, there's this award you can get at the end of your teaching degree if you were the best placement student. And I got nominated for it and I was like, yes, that's mine. I deserve it. I was going to frame it. Didn't win it. And I was very upset. And I was upset because I felt entitled, because I was proud and because I believed that I needed to be acknowledged and recognised by people for what I do. Most of us hope deep down, whether we'll admit it or not, that other people see the good things we do. We want to be patted on the back and we want to be told, good job. And that's, that's normal. <laughs> we, want, we want encouragement. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this thing that we want, which is ultimately glory. We want the glory. We want to be told that we are the source of good. We are the one who has done good things. That's what deep down all of us want. We have this sense that we deserve things, that we deserve, uh, we have this belief in our rights. You know, my rights, I, 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 have a, I have a right to this, I have a right to that, I deserve this, I deserve that. And I wonder if a lot of our generation's disenchantment and a lot of our generation's poor mental health is because we've believed a worldly lie that life will be a certain way. And when it is not that way, it, cause, it, it, it undermines the foundations that we've built our lives upon. Because if the foundation of my life is that things will turn out well for me and they don't turn out well for me, then that leaves us in a very vulnerable position. And I think we will live in a state of constant dissatisfaction until we come to the cross, until we come to Christ, until we recognise who Jesus is. And in Philippians 2, Paul writes of Jesus, he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus was the only man who could actually have lived his life with a sense of entitlement because he was God he is God, the creator, walking amongst his creation. And he would be within his rights to walk around demanding that people bow down to him, demanding to be acknowledged for the good things that he has done. But he humbled himself and made himself a servant to the point that the creator God allowed his very creation to slay him. In Christ, we see the opposite of entitlement. In Christ, we see the opposite of pride. Jesus, fully God and fully man, who could have entered the world 
in a blaze of fire with an army of angels and wiped out evil once and for all. Did not do that. He came as a baby. I've just had a baby. Well, I didn't have Jasmine had the baby. Babies are not good at anything. They're like, they can't even talk. They cry a lot, but they can't, they don't really know, like, they can't tell you what they want. And having, like, having now had this child, this baby, and holding it in my arms when, when Imogen was first born and looking at her, and I was just thinking, Jesus chose to come like this. Oh my goodness. The Christmas story, it's a nice story, but I think sometimes as Christians we can treat it, it's like a Christian fairy tale almost. But it's not. It's the creator of the universe, the rightful king of kings, coming to earth as an infant. The humility of Christ is astounding. In deep humility, he gave up his life so that we could surrender our pride and entitlement and accept his life as our own. And I think, you know, I said earlier, we do feel this great sense of satisfaction when the bad guys lose and the good guys win. And I think that comes from this deep desire that we have. This deep knowing, I think, that every person has that good should triumph. And it has. Jesus has won. In the same passage in Philippians verse 9, it says, Therefore God exalted him, being Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus has won. He's been exalted to the highest place. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is the victorious king on the throne. So where does this leave us? Because I've just talked about how we're pr- proud and sinful and that's we're not going we're not staying there, okay? Because Jesus hasn't left us there. It leaves us in this tension and this realization that yes, I am capable of great evil in my life. And I am capable of harming others, of hurting people. And it would be proud to say otherwise. It means that we get to learn to be holy, learn to give up our pride, learn to give up our entitlement, learn that we don't really have what it takes. And then seeing that Jesus did. Jesus did. And so, as we try to follow Jesus, we still find ourselves often getting really bogged down in things, in life, in challenges, in health, in work, in relationships, or a lack of those things. We find ourselves struggling, pushing mud up a hill. Surely that's not what life is about, right? Surely. 
I want to talk a little bit about Mordecai for a minute. So Mordecai basically replaces Haman. So they do do a big switch. So the the death that Haman intended for Mordecai, Haman gets, and the position that Haman held, Mordecai gets. So Mordecai ends up becoming the two I see, the second in command of the empire. And so he has the opportunity to write a law to do something about the plight of his people. So they're destined to be killed, destroyed, annihilated. That's, that's kind of what the law says. If you want to fight and go to war against the Jews, you have the tick of approval. And what Mordecai does, he comes up with this new law. And he doesn't get rid of the old one. And he doesn't say, well, the new law is you're not allowed to attack the Jews. He doesn't do that. What he does is he says, on that day, the Jews can fight back. So the trouble for the Jews is still coming. They still have a fight on their hands. They're still going to be attacked and persecuted and challenged, but now they have a way to defend themselves. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, isn't that what Christ does for us? So often in life we pray for the challenge, for the hardship, for the difficulty to be removed. And what Jesus says is, yes, ultimately it will be because your hope is not here, your hope is in heaven. But for while you're here, I will give you the ways to defend yourself. I will give you the tools and the weapons that you need in the fight that's in front of you. So he's not necessarily removing challenges, although sometimes he does. But I think more so, and I think what most Christians who have stayed in the faith for a long time will say is, Jesus gave me what I needed to get through the fight. And so he gives us weapons. He gives us armor. In Ephesians, we talked about the weapons he gives us, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. He gives us prayer as a weapon to fight back against the enemy. He gives us the armor, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes of peace and the shield of faith. And he gives us these things so that we can fight. And that might not fill you with excitement because you're like, oh, I would rather he just took everything away. That's not what he does. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We don't have a saviour who is not familiar with the feeling of not wanting to go through those struggles. He knew what was coming. And he asked the Father, is there another way? But not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus went to the cross, and we know that, that he went to the cross. And he went through suffering. 
but it wasn't his end. Because he went to the cross and he defeated death and he defeated sin and he defeated pride and he came back to life. He was resurrected into new life so that we could also walk in that victory with him. And Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to his church so that not only do we have the tools and the weapons for the fight, we actually have God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit in us, indwelling us to equip us and empower us and strengthen us and help us in the fight. So there's still a fight, but we're fighting on the winning side. There's still challenge, but we're fighting on the side of the conquering king who has won. And all of this can be incredibly challenging if our view is here. If my view is shallow. I'm short-sighted, so if I go like this, you have lovely blurry faces. But I can see my computer really well. And if my view is this, and that's a challenge, and that's as far as I can see, then it is very hard to have hope. So you need to put your Jesus glasses on. <laughs> because when we know Jesus, we know that the fight is won. We know that what's in front of us here is not the ultimate challenge and not the ultimate fulfilment. We know that whatever joy we get here will be completely surpassed by the glory that is to come. As I said last week, it's not the what of heaven that should get us excited. It's the who. We're going home to be with King Jesus. He's coming back to claim his bride and there will be a great feast and a great celebration on that day. And that should at least make some of you smile a little bit. Because this isn't it, guys. The stuff that's in front of you now, this isn't it. It feels like it is. Like it, it, re it really feels like it is. I know that. But it's not. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crowd of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a, held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many of other nationalities became Jews because of the fear of the Jews." They've just been told the law that's passed that they are getting excited about is that you're going to be attacked and you get to fight back. Mordecai is foreshadowing King Jesus who puts in place the new covenant that says 
you will still face persecution. He tells his disciples, in this world you have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. The hope and the joy and the celebration for us is that this is not the end. That we have been given the power and the authority by the Holy Spirit to fight back. That we don't just have to stand here and cop it. We're not just a boat bobbing around in the ocean, buffeted by the wind and the waves. We have a king who has given us, first of all, what we need here, but second and more importantly, a hope in what is to come. Something I've been just, that God's really been, and you're probably hearing this in what what I've been preaching the last couple of weeks, God's just really been putting on my heart that our hope is in heaven. It's not here. And the longer you live, and I'm, you know, I'm 31, pretty old. The longer you live, the more you realise this world is not very satisfying. C.S. Lewis says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world. King Jesus is coming back. And when he does, and when he makes things new, our joy will be made complete. We live in this tension of now but not yet. And that's real. I'm not diminishing that. But we need to lift our eyes. This isn't it. There are better things coming. And I don't mean that as in there's better things coming in this life. There might not be. But ultimately, there is. Because Jesus sits on the throne. And he's won the fight. So keep going. Don't give up. Even if it's just one foot in front of the other, even if it's just day by day and you can't see anywhere past that, keep going. Keep pursuing Jesus. Because he's one. And he'll bring you home. Caitlin, do you want to come up? Why don't you stand? I think there are people here that feel like they've been in the fight, in the battle for a long time. It doesn't feel like it's getting any better. In fact, maybe it feels like it's getting harder and getting worse. Some of you want to believe what you're hearing. You want to believe that there's hope in heaven. You want to believe that Jesus is king. 
But what's happening in front of you is making you wonder if that's true. Maybe some of you are like me. And you know all about God in your head. Because you grew up in church and you know the Bible stories and, and, you know, maybe they do feel a little bit like fairy tales. And you need a shift. You need something to go from here to here. You need the Holy Spirit to move in and on and through you that the truth of the coming King Jesus would not just be something that, yeah, I know He's coming back. I know, I know, I know heaven's real. I get it. But it would actually be a deep stillness, a knowing in the depths of your soul and assurance, a hope in what you can't see that can't actually be rocked. That says, yeah, there's a fight, but I'm on the winning side, so I'm up for it because I know maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 20 years, maybe it's 70 more years, and then it's eternity with my King, my good King who loves me, who paid for my soul, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather humbled Himself, did what I couldn't do. He was humble because I'm proud. He was humble. He allowed His creation to put Him on the cross. Most of us don't even like people being mean. But Jesus went through it so that we could know Him. Some of you are young. I mean, you're all pretty young. Some of you are in your early 20s and you're already wondering, how the heck am I going to get through this? How the heck am I going to get through life? With Jesus is the only answer. With Jesus with you in the fight, with Jesus by your side, with Jesus actually winning for you. Mordecai put in a law so that the Jews could fight back and win. Jesus came so that we wouldn't even have to fight the ultimate battle because He won it. If you're here tonight and you are just feeling like, I don't know how the heck I'm going to get through life. I don't know how I'm going to get through what's next. It all feels too big, too scary, too overwhelming. Then tonight, just pray that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who was there at the beginning and who will be there at the end, pray that He would minister to you that you would know your King. Let's pray. Father God, you love these people so much. 
and some of them are struggling. And Lord, I just ask that you would meet us where we're at tonight. You would come into the mess. That you would show us your grace and your truth and your love. That you would give us peace for today and a great hope for tomorrow. That the weight of the world wouldn't continue to weigh us down. That we would come to you and be relieved and have that weight lifted from our soul. while everyone's eyes are closed if that's if that's you tonight and you are feeling overwhelmed by what is in front of you and what is around you and you do not have hope I just want you to put your hand up so I know who you are I'm not going to make you come up the front or anything like that but I just want to know who you are so I can pray for you Awesome, awesome. There's more of you, I know there is. Father God, would you give these precious people hope? Father God, would you allow them to see you for who you are, that they wouldn't, be overwhelmed by the enormity of today. You would fill them with hope for tomorrow. Pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, You can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.